Hi, everyone. Thank you for joining our second podcast of 2020. In case you're wondering, this is the ASF Weekly Science Podcast, and I'm Alicia Halliday, the Chief Science Officer of ASF. Now, I have a big whiteboard in my office at home of things I want to do in the coming weeks or in the coming year, and the list is always endless, but there is a section around podcasts specifically. One of the podcasts I planned for 2019 and now in 2020 is on gene-environment interactions. More around the concept of gene-environment interactions, what we know about in other disorders, what we need to know about in autism, and evidence that it exists. Now, while this podcast isn't exactly what I had imagined, it may actually be better because Dr. Brian Lee, an epidemiologist from Drexel University, provides us in his own words his viewpoint on the importance of gene-environment interactions. He also explains what's been missing from existing studies that say they study gene-environment interactions. Later on in the podcast, I want to share a new study on twins that explains how gene-environment interactions or the environment just on its own could be leading to variability in symptom presentation rather than just a diagnosis of autism. Dr. Lee posted his Viewpoint article on Spectrum News. You may have heard about Spectrum News. Um, They're pretty popular and they're very timely and they have a lot of articles coming out all the time. The Viewpoint was titled Autism Heritability. It doesn't mean what you probably think it does. Instead of me just reading it, I asked Dr. Lee to read it in his own words and thank goodness he agreed. So this is an epidemiologist explaining what heritability means and where studies of heritability fall short. Dr. Lee, you have the floor. The question of autism's heritability is compelling for researchers and lay people alike, but many people in both groups misunderstand its definition. Heritability is defined as the proportion of variation in a condition that is attributable to variation in genetics. Heritability estimates can influence how much time and money researchers like me think should be allocated to studying genetic factors versus environmental ones. For families with a history of autism, heritability estimates get right to the heart of the nature versus nurture debate by offering clues about which factors led to an individual's diagnosis. These numbers have substantial implications, but they probably should not. Autism arises from a complex interplay of genetic and environmental factors, and most heritability studies oversimplify these relationships. Several studies on autism heritability published in the past few years have drawn considerable attention. Those published from 2011 to 2014 estimated heritability to be in the 35 to 50 percent range, but studies published since 2017 have put the number at 64 to 85 percent. What do these numbers actually mean? Heritability is often misinterpreted as the proportion of a condition that is caused by genes. However, that interpretation is not quite correct. Or rather, so many asterisks must be attached in order for it to be correct that it could not be by any stretch of the imagination considered to be correct. Heritability estimates may tell us to what extent a person's genetics predispose them to a condition, but they tell us nothing about how different environments cause those genetics to play out. First, let me explain why most estimates of heritability are incorrect. Studies that estimate autism's heritability use a statistical model to try to attribute the condition to either genetics or environment. Mounting evidence suggests this model is too simplistic to explain how autism arises. The model generally looks something like this. 
Observed characteristics are phenotype, uh, represented by the capital letter P equals genotype, capital letter G plus environment, capital letter E. The G and E components can each be broken down further to get at specific types of genetic or environmental contributions, but the core point of the model is to separate G and E. A statistical model is merely a caricature of the real world, though. The extent to which it is useful depends on how well the model reflects reality. The P equals G plus E model assumes that genetic and environmental influences are independent of each other and that genes do not interact with the environment or with other genes to influence phenotype. We know in fact that networks of genes interact to influence a person's odds of having autism and that genetic factors raise the odds of having autism caused by environmental exposures such as infection, air pollution, or nutrition. In short, if reality is more complex than the model, that model may produce inaccurate heritability estimates. There are many more technical reasons why published heritability estimates are likely to be inaccurate. There is also a much simpler reason why heritability estimates should not be taken at face value. High heritability does not equal genetic causation, and it does not exclude the possibility of environmental influence. Here are two thought experiments that demonstrate why. Borrowing an example from the great evolutionary biologist Richard Lewontin, imagine planting a set of identical seeds in a uniform environment that ensures all the seeds receive equal amounts of light and nutrients. Any variation in the heights of the plants that grow from those seeds is solely attributable to genetic variation among the plants. The heritability in the scenario is 100%. Now imagine taking another set of the same seeds and planting them in uniformly suboptimal growing conditions with limited light and nutrients. The plant's growth would be stunted, and again, the heritability would be 100%. The point is, even where heritability is estimated to be 100%, the environment can influence phenotype. Of course, this is not limited to plants. For example, the heritability of human height is estimated to be approximately 80%, but height is still strongly regulated by a person's nutritional environment. Next, consider this example from David S. Moore and David Schenk. Imagine a bucket of water into which person A pours 40 liters of water and person B pours 60 liters of water. Clearly, 40% of the water is attributable to person A, 60% to person B. Now imagine the same bucket, but this time person A turns on the faucet and person B holds the hose. How much of the water in the bucket is due to person A and how much is due to person B? In short, when causes interact in to create an outcome, it becomes nonsensical to try to apportion credit or blame to one cause independent of the other. The bucket example is not just a thought experiment, though. It represents conditions that have both genetic and environmental components. Consider the condition phenylketonuria, which occurs in people who have genetic variants that affect how their bodies metabolize the amino acid phenylalanine. The condition does not occur in the absence of the genetic variants, but it also does not occur if phenylalanine is re removed from the diet. So how much of it can be attributed to genes versus the environment? 
The consequences of miscasting heritability as the contribution of genetics to any given individual's diagnosis are potentially dire. As well as misinforming the public, it could throw funding for research on the etiology of autism entirely into genetic research rather than into how genes and environment interact. This should cause genetic and environmental researchers alike great concern. The search for rare genetic variants that may cause autism has yielded many important findings, but the search for common variants whose influence combines to raise autism's odds has been less fruitful. There are likely to be many of these variants, each exerting only weak effects, which makes them undetectable except in massive study samples. It is also highly likely that many common variants do not exert an effect unless they are present along with another genetic or environmental factor. Animal models that explore genetic factors in the absence of relevant environmental interactions could be doomed never to recapitulate those genetic factors' effects in people. In short, many heritability estimates of autism in the literature are likely to be inaccurate and, more importantly, prone to misinterpretation. Rather than asking, are genes or the environment responsible for autism, we should be asking, how are genes and the environment responsible for autism? Thank you so much for that. And thank you for all the work in putting together this viewpoint and publishing on Spectrum News. I'm going to post the link on the podcast link so everyone can read it in case they miss something. Now, last week I talked about sperm and how autism can be influenced by sperm even before conception has taken place, widening the period for potential environmental exposures. This week, I want to focus on how twin studies, which are traditionally used to show that most of autism is genetic, is now showing that environmental factors play a significant role in symptom presentation. Now, this data comes from the same investigators that showed autism was all genetic in twin studies, so it's interesting to see that the perspective on this data has changed a little bit. Now, using three different twin cohorts with almost 300 twins combined, Researchers showed again an 82% concurrence of autism spectrum disorder in monozygotic twins. Now, this is across the three different cohorts, and the 82% concurrence means that if one had autism, there was an 82% chance the other one also had an autism diagnosis. Now, these monozygotic twins are ones that come from the same embryo, so that initial embryo splits, and they have close to 100% of the same DNA. That also means that they're the same biological sex when they're born. This 82% means that genetics does account for a huge percentage in the diagnosis of autism, but that's not where the story ends. Some of the previous studies looking at twins had used a measure of heritability that Lee just called out for ignoring gene environment interactions. And those are studies that looked at both monozygotic and dizygotic twins. Dizygotic twins are the ones that start from two separate embryos and share 50% of their DNA. However, in this study, they basically looked at how often monozygotic twins who share 100% of their DNA had autism when the other had autism. It didn't include dizygotic twins. And since dizygotic twins only share 50% of their DNA, looking at cross symptom presentation in these two twins probably just introduces a lot of variability to it. If you see differences across two dizygotic twins, like what my, who my daughters are, then you're really not going to get to how genetics and environment play a role. So they started with monozygotic twins, both having an autism diagnosis, and how they were different phenotypically or how their features of autism and their severity of autism was different in each twin. 
So using a more dimensional test to look at autism traits rather than an autism diagnosis, they looked at these twins and ranked their autism severity for each one. Now, when parents rate autism traits in twins who don't have autism, so forget autism, now neither twin has autism, the parents rate these kids as being very similar to each other. That kind of surprised me. I have dizygotic twins, and let me tell you, I couldn't rate them any differently. But these are monozygotic twins that neither of which have autism. So the parents use something called a social responsiveness scale, and they rank them as being pretty similar. They show pretty similar scores. When they're used in twins and people with autism to better understand the features of autism across the spectrum rather than an autism diagnosis, in fact, the monozygotic twins both with autism scored pretty differently. People lie on the SRS on a normal distribution. That is, some people score really high, some people score really low, but most people score in the middle. This is regardless of an autism diagnosis. This is regardless of whether or not you have a twin with autism. Just in general, people score on a normal distribution on the SRS as being either really high or really low, but most people are kind of in the middle. People with autism score higher on the normal distribution compared to those without autism, but people without autism can also score very high on this measure. I will note scoring high on this measure and not having any indications of any sort of psychopathology is pretty rare. The social responsiveness scale here was not used as a diagnostic tool, but a way to describe the symptoms in monozygotic twins across a spectrum. Other studies have used the SRS in twin studies of autism, but not usually to describe differences. They usually kind of look at those who score very, very high and are likely to have a diagnosis. So what the researchers found was there was much more differences between monozygotic twins with autism compared to those without autism. In fact, those with autism were four times as different as those without autism. To give you a sense, usually the correlation or the association between non-autism twins is 0.76. So that means the numbers are pretty close together. One twin shows a trait, the other one shows the same trait. In autism twins, it was all over the place. This association was like 0.3. The actual differences were that one had high scores, the other one had low scores. Some had similar scores, but they don't really follow a pattern the way they do in people without autism. And neither did their autism severity score measured by another tool, the Autism Diagnostic Observation Scale. Again, this is just in monozygotic twins. The authors conclude, and I'll quote here, Although these findings await replication in a sample of an even larger number of identical twins on the clinical range for autism, an overarching interpretation of these results is that the factors responsible for variation and severity within the clinical range diverge from those that are responsible for the heritability of the condition itself. In other words, things that affect severity are different than things that determine diagnosis. It doesn't mean that a symptom severity is not genetic. It may be but you shouldn't imply that it is genetic. So autism is a diagnosis, that may be genetic, but autism is features across a continuum, not so genetic. What does this mean? Well, unfortunately it means that we probably need to update again our understanding of the word role of genetics and heritability as you just heard Dr. Lee say in autism symptomatology. It appears that yes, genes alone may be responsible for a lot, but not everything. And even how severely autism shows up 
rather than a diagnosis alone, is up to environmental factors. On an individual basis, what does this mean? Is it less genetic? No, but there is more of a role of the environment on the presentation of symptoms. Unfortunately, this study does not explain why individual symptoms or severity features may be different, and it doesn't even explain the causes of autism in every single person. Again, these are just mathematical models, but this one allows for a greater role of the environment. Heritable does not mean genetic, and there needs to be more role in the environment. After all, even those that say that autism's diagnosis is genetic acknowledge that the environment is important in the presentation of symptoms. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you next week. 